Welcome back to the Homeschool Advantage Podcast. I'm your host, Bex Buzzy. Today's guest is Michael Strong, founder and chief visionary of the Socratic Experience. Michael is one of the most experienced designers of innovative school programs in the United States. Michael is also the author of The Habit of Thought, From Socratic Seminars to Socratic Practice, and the lead author of Be the Solution, How Entrepreneurs and Conscious Capitalists Can Solve All the World's Problems. Also, students from Michael's schools have been admitted to Harvard, Stanford, Georgetown, Smith, Bard, Bennington, McGill, UT Austin, University of Colorado, the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, Parsons School of Design, Quest, St. John's, and many dozens of other post-secondary institutions. In this episode, we talk about how intellectual dialogue can be a joyful yet powerful way to learn a wide variety and wide range of material. Also, how teens love to discuss ideas together, especially when their ideas are treated with respect. And lastly, how students learn to analyze text to provide evidence-based interpretations. So go grab your coffee, go grab your tea and a pen and paper, because you're not going to want to miss what Michael has to say. Let's get into the podcast. Say hello to our guests and tell us what's a fun fact about your industry that will really surprise our listeners. So I'm Michael Strong, founder of the Socratic Experience, and I would say new forms of education are going to revolutionize the United States in the biggest possible way in the coming decades. It's the most exciting time to be in education, I would say, in human history. I agree. I am noticing the rise of education in one area and unfortunately the decline in others, but I guess it has to happen, right? So that one can rise up and then the other one can almost be taken out. And we all know which one we want taken out. It's the traditional school system. <laughs> creative destruction. It. I'm all about creative destruction all the time. New op- new options. And we need to let a thousand flowers bloom. Of I, For me, it's agency, it's personalization, and meaning and purpose. So I, I didn't get into this, but I, I see there's a mental health crisis with adolescents. I see the new forms of education uh, solving the mental health crisis largely. I also, the whole, you know, GPT AI revolution, destroying jobs, I see becoming an individual with a distinctive personal passion and vision is the best way to stay ahead of AI. And ultimately, I see culture, which is so antagonistic, being recreated by means of motivated, pur- purpose-driven people who want to make the world a better place without attacking people all the time. Michael, oh my gosh, you made me think of something that I've never thought of. I always understood education and to educate people is extremely important. I always understood that creativity and allowing a person to just use their God-given gifts is extremely important. And when you just mentioned making sure that we, this is how I received it, making sure that we educate our kids, get them ahead of the curve, so that AI doesn't take away our ability to, I guess, be stewards of our country and of our world. Because honestly, the traditional school system right now is really taking away critical thinking. It's bas- I mean, they say that they're trying to help critical thinking, but 
when you're in the system, you clearly see that there is no critical thinking. It's like, oh, can you think the way I do? Really? It's, that's actually how it is. Like, think like me, the teacher versus, hey, what are you seeing? Asking those questions that will draw out the the wisdom and intelligence, which gets me to exactly what you do. So what is the focus of your work in the homeschool, well, in, in the education community? Sure. So I've been in education for 35 years. I got started, I left Harvard to attend St. John's College, where for four years, nothing but Socratic dialogue, no lectures, no tests. I loved it. So for decades, I've been in, doing Socratic dialogues and classes. Now, when COVID hit, I went virtual with the Socratic experience. It's a virtual school, grades three through 12. We also offer a la carte options. Many of our families are homeschoolers who love our Socratic humanities option. It's two hours a day, four hours a week, and four days a week. And one of the reasons for that is I think uh, a lot of things, there are a lot of great courses for homeschoolers out there, but high quality intellectual dialogue is not easy to find. And many teens in particular want and need peer interaction. And it should be intellectual and respectful and high quality. And so we provide, I would say, for most of our homeschooling families, probably 30 to 40% of our families are homeschoolers. We provide this sort of intellectually rich, socially warm, Socratic dialogue component to complement whatever else they're doing in the homeschooling world. And I love how the Socratic method actually does like support and supplement a lot of curriculums. You can really add it into anything, right? Like Socratic method is not something that is like just singular and you only do this at this time. You can actually incorporate it even in your own life and at your own job, right? Well, big time. I'll, I'll even go one step more. Um, the philosopher and mathematician Alfred North Whitehead said that all of Western civilization can be seen as a series of footnotes to Plato. I would say all of intellectual life can see, be seen as the result of Socratic dialogue. That is, people think, anytime people are thinking about ideas, how to understand things, the whys of everything, and that's pervasive in the work world, as you mentioned, in any academic subject. And a lot of what we want as educators, we want to shift students from passive to active learners. And the core of active learning is what do you think and why? How do you understand this? How can you understand this more deeply? And so we see ourselves as developing amazing autodidacts for both schooling and the work world. A lot of our families are creative or entrepreneurial professionals, and a lot of our students become entrepreneurs and creators, because once one becomes an original thinker coming to understand things for oneself, then all sorts of doors open up. So yes, it's pervasive. I think it can be deployed for anyone who wants to create value in the 21st century. I love that. Now, when I got introduced to the Socratic method, I was doing a form of it. I didn't even know. I just knew I didn't want to keep giving my students answers. I had decided, I was like, you know what? Science, I teach physics, uh, chemistry, and biology. And when I was teaching chemistry, I really fell in love with like inquiry. And I was like, you know what, if I just keep giving them the answers, like they're never going to actually learn anything. So I, at the beginning, like actually not in the beginning, in the middle, maybe six weeks into my class, which is a really long time. And kids get really used to things after like six weeks. And I had three weeks left and my class was over. I decided to do that. I decided to say, okay, guys, I'm not giving you any more answers. They're like, what? I'm like, yeah, 
I'm actually going to trade questions for questions. So like you can trade me a question and my question will lead you to your answer, but it's not going to give you the answer. And every time you say something that is not maybe not correct or you might be close to it, I'll ask you a question to lead you closer. I'll tell you, Michael, the first week was like hell. <laughs> it was so bad. My students were actually in the beginning, they were like, yeah, let's do that. Woo-hoo-hoo. And by like day two, they were so frustrated. They're like, just give me the answer. I was like, no. And I had to like really push, push, push. And it took those whole three weeks. But then I had them again for another semester. And it became amazing, my class. After a while, do you know I I didn't even need to talk to them anymore? They began to ask each other questions. I would hear a student go to another student and go, hey, what's the answer for this? He's like, well, let me ask you a question. And I was like, oh, it's like, did he just say that? And it was so cool. I didn't have to actually at that point, I didn't even have to like try and teach them because they were like literally just asking. It, It was a room of like 20 kids just asking each all of them, even the ones that didn't want to do work, began to like really understand like the, the, the like the value of just asking deep dive questions. Now, with that, a lot of parents that might be listening may not truly understand what Socratic method. I don't think it's fully only questions. It's it's just a dialogue that draws out information. But I would love for you if you could be able to just explain and like kind of unpack Socratic dialogue for our parents who maybe just aren't that familiar with it. Absolutely. Um, First, I just want to validate your experience of the transition in a class. One of the reasons I began creating my own schools is 30 years ago, I was in public schools. And sometimes I would do exactly what you've done in one class. In second period, we'd get the kids thinking and talking. And then in fourth period, they'd have a teacher who said, shut up and listen. And all of this is, it, it is with many groups, it's initially difficult for sure. I think many people see how difficult it is and say, this doesn't work. I see this as a cultural shift from passive learning to active learning. But once one gets it going, it's absolutely amazing. And it's so much easier for me as an educator to do this when I control a whole school and all classes have a Socratic component. So I'll, I'll do kind of a narrow version and a broader version of what we actually do. So the narrow version is in the humanities text base. We read and discuss usually a classic text, but we also do some contemporary texts in poetry, art, philosophy, uh, all kinds of things, literature. And because we read something in common, the focus of the text is understanding the author and using reason and evidence. And so this gets beyond the questioning. There's a mutual expectation of logical consistency and coherence. So that if you have an interpretation of a text and I don't see evidence of the text, I can say, hey, Bex, uh, I don't understand. There's a polite way of doing it. It's like, what are you thinking? It's the mean way. Part of what we do to make this effective is train students to be polite. Excuse me, I don't understand how your interpretation is supported here, given this fact. There's a respectful way of uh, exchanging ideas and asking each other for logical evidence. And actually, the, the social dynamic is really important. When this goes badly, it's often because 
sometimes students do take over, but sometimes when they ask questions, they are like, what are you thinking, you idiot? You know? And so <laughs> a lot of times part of training students to do this well is to be respectful when they do these interactions. But ultimately, and this is why it's so powerful, it's about using reason and evidence to come to conclusions. And right, a math and science. So we um, do group math problem solving. We also have a the standard linear math curriculum with tutors and that's self-paced and that's lots and lots of problem solving and uh, deliberate practice. But we also have a group math problem solving where we work through, say, a math competition problem. How do you how do you open this thing up? And then they have different strategies and they're exchanging ideas. So a lot out of it is shifting students from passive learning to active learning and then creating a social environment, a culture where it's not only normal to ask questions, uh, normal to give reason and evidence, normal to expect the other person to give reason and evidence, and really respect for each other. Because I think one of the reasons some teachers are afraid of doing this is uh, things can blow up. You know, I, I think respectful, the respectful dialogue cannot be uh, overestimated how important that is. And, you know, one of the signs uh, things are working is we had a group of uh, nine-year-olds who were in a breakout room and they started talking about Christianity versus Islam. Some of them were Christians and some were Muslims, but they were respectfully talking about it at age nine. So once, and then of course, we could go into how our society as a whole is a disaster with respect to respectful dialogue. They have no models. Most students have no models of how to exchange ideas respectfully. It's a disaster on campus as a consequence. So a lot of this is training not just the intellectual inquiry, but how to do so while being respectful with each other. And one of the other techniques we use is often we have a debrief at the end of the session, see what worked, what didn't, how to do it better. So there's kind of a cycle of continuous improvement. Finally, I would say a lot of, sometimes with some groups of students, this is easy to do. You ask a question, they have a great conversation done. Part of becoming a great Socratic leader is dealing with more diverse kinds of questions and issues and challenges uh, because there are other groups where it's a disaster. And one needs to develop the art of, okay, if it's not working, how do I get to the beautiful place you got your class to? And with lots of experience, you know, I'm confident I can get almost any group to a great place given enough time. But it's taken years of experience in this broad repertoire of how to fix things when it's not going well. Oh my gosh, I agree. Michael, I was just thinking as you were talking, I remember I had to give them sentence frames because I didn't want them just to say anything. I had, I think the first time I just didn't give him sentence frames. I was like, whoa, this is not working out very well. So I had to go back and revise and say, okay, guys, one, we're not disrespectful. <laughs> it's like, you, and we don't say everything that's in our brain. Like we actually filter it. Uh, so I had to teach them, you know, that kind of, I guess, soft skills in a sense of how to interact with people, right? And to have like emotional intelligence, like empathy. And, but at the same time, to be able to articulate what they're trying to say and the old, you know, adage of, you know, you get more bees with honey than you do with vinegar. <laughs> so I was teaching them a lot of those things too. And I think that's what's really important. So with the Socratic method, you're teaching a lot more than just like, a dialogue. You're teaching them how to be socially interactive, how to be able to talk to other people of other different belief systems. And I'm really, I'm really an advocate to be able to talk to other people that maybe don't believe the way I do and find out why do you believe the way you do? And I tell a lot of my students, I'm like, just because someone doesn't agree with you, first off, doesn't mean they are a 
hater. And two, you know, it doesn't mean that they're wrong either. And it, and it also doesn't mean that you shouldn't be their friend. You can completely learn from another person if you ask the right questions. Find out why, why do you think the way you do? Why do you feel about the things that you do? Ask those questions to see where they're at, you know, like you can learn from other people. So for me, I, I'm, I'm a huge advocate of dialogue and conversation and you're right, but, you know, and I think a lot of these mindsets of, you know, you have to believe the way I do. It's the, it's funny because they're the same people who are fighting against that happening to them or, or in, it's like, Oh, so you can't actually win win any battles by doing the same thing that was done. You have to change it now. So I, I do. I agree with with dialogue when the whole and I'm going to be very you know open with this because it just it is what it is with the whole BLM thing. I have a lot of friends who are black. Right. And. I had to just start asking questions like, Hey, what, what is this all about? Like what's going on? You know? And, and one of my friends was like, thank you. Thank you for talking with me about it instead of just like assuming what it is. And a lot of them were like, we're not in a hundred percent agreement with what's happening. This is not what we're talking about. So when you start asking questions, you actually start learning that maybe what the media is showing really isn't real. Oh, shocker. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. No, just, a couple of things. First of all, my wife is an African who has done work. Her her company is actually focused on curiosity, empathy, and love. And she makes the case that the best anti-bias training is not traditional DEI, but it's approaching other people with curiosity, empathy, and love. And one of the ways in which we get students to empathize is is to understand the other person cognitively. So going back to technique, a lot of times I'll train students to rephrase what they thought they heard. I think a lot of conflict comes because people have their own agendas and they, they're eager to kind of, you know, tell the other person what, this is what I think, this is what the truth is. And a lot of times I say, what I'm doing is I'm training students that person A speaks, person B listens and thinks and then replies. And simply that listens and thinks is rare. And so part of the way to get that is I often model if I understand you correctly, Jane, it sounds like you're saying blah, blah, blah. Am I correct? And it's subtle, but instead of me being the teacher saying, you know, this is the right or wrong answer, Jane, it's, am I understanding you correctly? And is this what you mean? And, you know, I'm pretty good at summarizing. So usually I do, but occasionally not. And so I model how difficult it is for human beings to understand each other. Often after I've trained students to do that, they think, how is it we ever communicate successfully at all? They realize to a great extent, it's, Ego, 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 and very little real communication across the chasm of humanity. Whereas with practice, they really do learn not only to do it cognitively, but going back to the empathy piece and curiosity, caring about how other people understand the world, build their reality. Um, and it turns out, I think human beings, I, I think human beings are endlessly fascinating. The part of what we're doing is we're getting them out of their ego bubbles to get them to understand just how incredibly diverse humanity is with respect to beliefs and norms and values. One more aside, often I find one of the greatest victories in a class is when two friends who think they agree on everything discover they really disagree on something else. And then they have to face the fact, oh, wow, my friend believes that? 
oh my gosh, you know, we live in such a pluralistic world. We've got to find a way to understand each other respectfully and work through it and come to win-wins. I love that, you know, and one thing that you had mentioned that I want to just like circle back to is a lot of times people, when they are having conversations, they're actually no longer listening. Once they hear something, all they're doing is waiting to answer. And I have a bunch of students like that and I'll I'll be talking and they just like, I'm like, Oh, hold up a second. Instead of like, I was like, I get what's happening. You, you heard me say something and now you just want to answer and you stopped hearing me. I was like, you need to like, listen to like, whatever I'm saying right now, just hear me out. And then you'll have a chance to talk if you need to like, write it down. So you don't forget, just jot down your thought and come back and listen. And I think that's a real issue with I think even as adults, right, people will just, they talk to, to, to answer like, like they listen to answer versus like, listen to actually hear what you're saying. And even I sometimes have to like really stop myself and say, okay, Beck, listen to what this person is saying, because you can learn something. I'm like a, I'm like a real, I love learning. Like I absolutely, if I could have had a job of learning the best job ever, like I'm not (laughs) the best job ever, but that doesn't exist. (laughs) So actually just to riff on that a little bit, you know, one of the, I, I often say that I love learning, but I hate school. It's that structure. Um, but one of the great things about the Socratic approach is our mental model, and this goes back to St. John's, is the adult is simply the most experienced learner in the class. And part of the Hopefully. thing about being a Socratic light is, well, you don't have to be the expert in everything. You know, we are experts at learning and in the case of reading, breaking things apart and attacking problems and so forth. But one of the things that I find very powerful is to articulate with students how I'm learning in real time. You know, if I if I zero in, you know, I'm wondering why the semicolon instead of bullets. And, you know, it's things like poetry. Why did the poet put a semicolon there? You know, and openly articulate uh, my own thought processes. There's a whole literature in education on metacognition, which I think often becomes buzzword. But for me, it's very real. Part of what I do as a leader is I'm conscious of my own processes. And it's so helpful for students to see how an adult learner is learning in real time. And I think one of the great ironies of traditional education is we want them to become great learners. But we are, as the standard role of a teacher is I'm the expert. And you're never supposed to expose uncertainty, learning, doubt with your students. Whereas I'm very open about this is how I'm figuring it out. This is where I'm confused. This is the part that's clear. And that's how you coach people to be great learners is to model learning in the classroom in real time. I love that, man, Michael, I I can literally talk to you like for a really long time. (laughs) Like It's just so easy to, to communicate with you. You would think that you were an expert in dialogue. (laughs) (laughs) I've done it. I've been on it once or twice. You know, I want to read one of the testimonies here because I think this is really powerful. Um, It says 95, which is a huge percentage. 95% of my child's learning difficulties went away in Michael Strong's program. That's a really huge percentage. And that is really powerful to hear when, you know, you're able to, because a lot of times I really don't think a lot of them are learning difficulties. I just think they're learning differences. Some might be, you know, challenges like where, you know, comprehension and different things, but I, I also, even, even still there, I think it's a learning difference. Like for like my only, my best example 
for that is was is me like I had a very hard time understanding and comprehending history until I studied art history once I studied art history history became easy and it became fun and I understood it very deeply because of painting and architecture. It became extremely comprehensive for me to understand the, the, t- the sign of the times, the era, the, the economy, who was, in, who was in control at the time, just by looking at the artwork and understanding, you know, their mindset. So it was really interesting. So I, I, do, I do feel like a lot of times learning difficulties are just learning differences and just the right method is going to bring out the child's genius, you know. Huge. So a couple of riffs on that. First, that particular family, the child was in a public school in an upscale New Jersey suburb, and the child was in a special ed program and had a full-time special ed teacher following him from class to class. And he moved to our school. This was a brick-and-mortar school I had in Austin, and no special ed program, but highly personalized, highly meaningful. And he flourished and is now actually working for me in my school. So that was a great thing. But I actually coined the term scolia-normative. You know, people talk about neurodiverse and learning differences. And again, I'm with you, I agree. But the reason I coined the term scolia-normative is who said it's normal to do well at school? I happen to be a straight-A student, got to Harvard, all that. But again, I, I think most people who find school to be normal were good at it. Whereas a lot of people are not good at it for whatever reason. It doesn't mean they're not a great learner. Different case, I've got a business partner who is a special ed student. He dropped out of school in middle school because of the bullying and stigma. And now he's a successful entrepreneur, makes seven figures. You know, he has dyslexia, so he listens to hundreds of audiobooks. He never became, you know, reading was not his thing, but you can listen instead of read. And I found so many students where when you personalize it, And then going back to your point, make it meaningful, all of a sudden learning happens. And so the one size fits all model, yeah, works for maybe 25, 30% of students. It does not work for most students. A couple of other data points. Uh, Yale did a study a couple of years ago, 75% of high school students are unhappy at school. It's a scale of misery that is unimaginable. Gallup for decades has done polls about the engagement cliff. In elementary school, about 60% of students are engaged in learning. By high school, it's about 30% of students are engaged in learning. Most students at the high school level are miserable, disengaged. I know you homeschool, but I'm going to support the homeschoolers here. There's also data on teen suicides, where teen suicides on Mondays during the school year are almost double what they are in July. This pattern stops when they graduate from high school. So clearly, (sighs) the scale of misery, one more piece you know, Jonathan Haidt and Jing Twinge had talked a lot about the role of social media and exacerbating the mental health crisis. I completely agree with them. But what they don't get at is there was an underlying problem even before that associated with the school issue. And wow. data point there from the CDC, simply if a child feels cared about at school, they are half as likely to attempt suicide. Oh, and so wow. going back to the homeschoolers, you know, if your child's in a large public middle school and they don't feel as if somebody cares about them, get them out now. Yes. I can't exaggerate the urgency of teens' purpose and community. My whole recipe for mental wellness is if a child has a sense of purpose and meaning, going back to how art history helped you learn history, and they have a sense of community, people who care, they're going to be much better than if they feel as if nobody cares and there's no purpose. And I think most students feel as if school is meaningless and nobody cares. And beyond the social media, I think that's 
the root of our adolescent mental health crisis. Wow, Michael. Woof, that hit home in so many different areas of like, just, I, I agree with you. And my, and my heart for, you know, the kids in, in public school, I'm, I'm a public school teacher and I do my best to try and really help shape. I mean, like I literally just fought the district on the, this new sex ed curriculum that is just atrocious in like, Oh my gosh, if the kids don't have issues already, I mean, like, it's just adding so many more things to it. And I, I didn't win. Like I, I, you know, I'm a Christian. I believe in God and I really believe God, you know, energized me, like really just equipped me to, to do this and believe it or not, my principal, at least for our small school said, we're not going to teach this and I'm going to fight the, the district and bring this to their attention and show them the law and show them that the curriculum doesn't abide by the law. Michael, that was powerful. When I heard that, I was like, oh my goodness, it's happening. So, you know, as long as there are people like you around, you know, to have parents go somewhere when they feel like there's no options. And that's why I started this whole podcast is to create places and avenues for parents to go to find that, hey, your child has a place to go. Your child There are quality, quality, high quality, you know, academia and education out there. And you do not need to subject your child to anything else but quality. So as we're wrapping up, you know, I'm going to put your link in the show notes. So it's www.socraticexperience.com is your website. That's correct. And you have a free shadow day. Uh, what can you just like uh, explain? What what is a shadow day really? Sure, like? sure. So first of all, we want aligned families. So if the children love our program and parents love our program. Everything works better. Alignment is everything. So families can have their children sit in our classes. It's four hours of Zoom, basically. We've got other program components, but a shadow day is they come and visit our Socratic Humanities which is 15 to 1 on Zoom based on their middle school or high school or whatever. And then another STEM, integrated STEM, where it's two hours of problem solving and Socratic discussion and STEM and things like that. And so the students can get a four-hour experience of what it's like to actually attend our program. Some students visit and they love it and they want their parents to enroll them the next day. In late May, that probably won't work. But And other families find it's not a good fit for them, and that's okay too. I'm all about, going back to the purpose, families need to find at schools and educational programs that aligned with their purpose. If this sounds like a good approach for your child, and a lot of teens are philosophical, questioning, curious, like to talk, some homeschooling families want more social engagement, we're a fabulous program for that. And we'd love to have families sign up for a shadow day and see if it's a good fit. Michael, it's been amazing talking to you. What's one takeaway you want our listeners to get from our conversation today? That there are healthier, more intellectually powerful paths for learning outside the conventional system. Personally, I think the conventional system is more or less going to collapse in the next 20 to 30 years. And I think warm agency-based forms of education where your child has purpose, meaning, and community are better for their mental well-being, better intellectually, better professionally, better for lifelong happiness and well-being for your child. So if you can find a better way to do it, go for it. And I'm here to validate these sorts of pathways in every possible way. 
Awesome. Thank you so much, Michael. It's been amazing having this conversation with you today. Great. Thanks for having me, Bex. Take care. If you love the conversations we're having here on the Homeschool Advantage podcast, follow or subscribe our podcast to stay in the loop and never miss this amazing content. And please highly consider taking a minute to leave a positive rating and review to help others like you discover this show. See you next time.